Please take your Bibles if you have them this evening and turn to 1 John chapter 5. Looking at verses 18 through 21, we are finishing the epistle of 1 John this evening. What we know is the title of the sermon. Last time we were together in 1 John 5, last week we thought through John's presentation of this idea of a sin unto death. But we focus significantly more upon what John was in fact focusing upon, which was not the sin unto death. He had said that there is a sin unto death and we discussed what that is and we don't want to avoid that. However, what he was asking, actually asking us to do was to pray for those who had sinned a sin for brothers who had sinned a sin that is not unto death. And the idea is that, uh, very similar to uh, various other passages of Scripture, James 5, Galatians chapter 6, the idea of restoring such a one, the praying for a brother uh, who is ill or, or, or who has sinned, and as he confesses his faults one to another, the idea is that we pray for one another, we help one another, we bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ, as Galatians chapter 6, verse 3 tells Uh, So today we continue in the context and we do come to the end of this epistle. Throughout the course of the epistle, we have learned not about how to be saved. That's what John is talking about in the Gospel of John. Not about how to stay saved. This doesn't even really have an analog within our scriptures biblically, but rather how to live in the fullness of the salvation that was purchased for us on the cross. That's what 1 John is about. John has warned us about false teaching throughout the epistle. John has compelled righteousness and love one for another. We spent a good amount of time answering that question. How do we love one another? What does that look like? We've been taught about trying the spirits, whether they be of God, and exercising a faith by which we are able to overcome the world, defined in John, the world as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So we've learned much over the course of these weeks. We come to the 31st week this evening and final week in 1 John. One final thing to wrap up our study. The final verses of 1 John say this, beginning in verse 18. We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. And we know that the Son of God hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true, and we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and life eternal. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. So as we read through these last verses, they are dominated by a particular phrase. Perhaps you noticed it as we were reading there. The phrase that dominates these last several verses is the phrase, we know. And it's for this reason that a lot of people, when they they think through, well, what is the error that, that was supposed to be taught throughout the course of this? They talk about Gnosticism and such, and it makes sense based upon both the errors that are presented and the fact that it all concludes with the idea of this is indeed what we know. Uh, but what I'd like to do in this final time together in 1 John is to walk through the things that John says in these last verses that we know. These are things that throughout the course of the time together we have learned, and now as we finalize this, this epistle, we ought to know them. And of course, knowing is the beginning of doing. 
And so as we establish what we know, it is unto this end, that we would take what we know and we make it what we do. That's a concept that we call faith. So we read 1 John 5, verse 18. We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. Now, this first statement really any of these statements, but this first statement is not new to us. Way back in 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, we read of the same concept and we discussed there what it means. So we read in 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin for his seed remaineth in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. And we discussed at the time what this did and what this didn't mean. That within the context, indeed, going if we were to go back to chapter 1, John is already said that we all sin, and if we say we have no sin, we are a liar, right? So we know that this doesn't mean that we do not sin, that when we have accepted Christ as our Savior, we will no longer sin. John has already said within the context that that is absolutely not the case. But when don't we sin, right? That's what we talked about. The idea here is not that we don't sin. The question is, when is it that we don't sin? And the answer is, we don't sin when we are living in the power of the new birth, right? The Bible tells us that when a person accepts Christ as their Savior, they are given a new nature, a spiritual nature. And at any given moment, we have the choice as to which nature that is within us, the nature that is inside of us, that we are going to submit ourselves unto. We can submit ourselves unto the old man, the old nature, that which Paul calls the flesh, or we can submit ourselves to the new man, the new nature, which is created in Christ Jesus unto good works, unto holiness. And when we're walking in the flesh, the Bible says we'll do the works of the flesh. Galatians 5 gives us a list of those in verses 19, 20. And when we're walking in the Spirit, the Bible says we'll do the works of the Spirit. Galatians 5 also talks about those. So that when I am living in this state into which I have been purchased and been born again, that state in which I am living is the state of being born of God. I am living in consistency with who I am, with my identity in Christ. I am living like the child of God that I am. And so I'm not sinning. Coming back to chapter 5 then. We know, because we have been taught, that the man who is born of God does not sin. The man who is born of God, the man who is walking in that new birth, the man who is walking in the Spirit, who is abiding in Christ, who is living in the fullness of the reality of what Christ purchased for him on the cross, does not sin. And then notice what John then says. Notice how he then describes it. This contrast, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself. This word keepeth here that we find in the text is a Greek word to mean to guard or to maintain. It actually is the word um, that is often used within the, particularly the Gospels, to talk about a guard, like a prison guard. It is the idea of to keep watch over or to guard. The process by which a man who is born of God does not commit sin is not an automatic process. It is not a process that just takes care of itself. It is so, not something that is 
something that is simply defaulted in the Christian life. Rather, as John says it here, we know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but, but instead he that is begotten of God keepeth himself. The man who is begotten of God is determined and lives out within his life a determined, committed, and acted upon guarding of himself against sin. And we can get some really good insight into what this guarding looks like actually in the epistle of Jude. In Jude, verses 20 and 21, there's only one chapter in Jude. In verses 20 and 21 of that chapter, the Bible says this, But ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Here we find the same command, and not just the same command, we actually find the same Greek word here for keep. It's the same one as we find in 1 John calling us to keep ourselves. And Jude gives us insight into what keeping oneself looks like as he commands his own readers as it relates to their Christian walk. And Jude first tells us that keeping oneself looks like building yourself upon your most holy faith. And second, he says, praying in the Holy Ghost. Let's talk about each in turn. When Jude speaks here about building ourselves upon our most holy faith, he speaks not of our individual faith. He speaks of the most holy faith. And as he speaks of that, he's actually talking about a corporate faith. And we know this because within the context of Jude, if we were to go back to the introduction of his letter, we see this stated. In Jude, verse 3, the Bible says this, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you, of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Notice that Jude calls the faith here, calls faith here, the faith, the faith, which was once delivered unto the saints. Jude is not speaking of the individual faith that you and I have, that kind of faith that James speaks of in James chapter two, as he says, faith without works is dead, being alone. This is rather the faith, not a faith, but the faith. That is the body of truth that Jesus Christ has given to us through, through his own teachings and then through the teachings of the apostles that makes up the common faith that we all Share the body of faith that we understand from the word of God. So that when Jude calls the believers to build themselves up in the most holy faith, this is not necessarily a call to have increased individual faith. That's an important thing. We learn about that in James 2. We learn about that in Hebrews 11. There are places where we learn about that, but much to the contrary, what Jude is saying here is that we are called to build one another up in the knowledge of God, in the doctrines that have been once and for all delivered to the saints that we share, that are passed down from generation to generation as we hold to the truths of the word of God. And we find, of course, those doctrines in the Holy Scriptures the ordinances and the doctrines drawn from the scriptures are our most holy faith. So as Jude exhorts the believers here to keep themselves in the love of God, the first way he exhorts them to do it 
is to build themselves up in the faith, in a knowledge of what has been taught to us and passed down to us as it relates to the doctrines of Christ. Keep yourselves in the love of God by keeping yourself grounded in the truths of God's word. The world around us, even much of the Christian world around us, is often driven by the winds of feeling, of fears, of confusions. Instability in life is not rooted in instability of circumstances. Everyone has changing circumstances. We all have relatively unstable circumstances. We uh, live in a society where we're able to stabilize our circumstances significantly more than many societies, many people throughout history. But stability in life is not rooted in stability of circumstances. Stability in life is rooted in stability of foundation, right? If we have a stability of foundation, then when the circumstances come that are unstable, when the circumstances come that we can't expect, that we can't plan for, it is not going to make our lives collapse because our foundation is strong. Sin is often an outworking of how I am coping with things that life is presenting me. And when I am built upon an unstable foundation, when my perceptions and my desires and my priorities rest upon a movable foundation, an insecure foundation, I should not be surprised when I fall to the deceits and the predations of sinful temptations within my life. But when my feet are firmly planted on an immovable foundation, when I have built myself up upon my most holy faith, Then when temptations of sin break against it, I can remain unmovable, not because of my strength, but because I am resting on the strength of an immovable foundation. And so I don't have to sin because I've kept myself in the love of God. I have been built up in my most holy faith. And that faith keeps me oriented to the right. It keeps me directed toward that which is right. I have been built up, not just by myself, not just by my understanding, but by my faith community, by the church where we come together to build one another up in our most holy faith. It's what we do here on a Sunday. It's what we do on a Tuesday night when we meet together. We are building one another up in our most holy faith. So Jude says, first off, building yourself up on your most holy faith. And then second, he speaks of another mark of keeping myself in the love of God. Not just building ourselves up in our most holy faith, but also praying in the Holy Ghost. Now, we spoke of prayer just two weeks ago. Last week, we actually spoke of prayer as well, praying one for another. But it was two weeks ago that we talked through the ideas of prayer themselves, what prayer looked like, why it mattered, the, the... exercise of asking with the expectation of receiving. Confidence of asking that I might receive, knowing the conditions by which I will have those things that I have asked of my Father which is in heaven. And since we just talked about it, I won't rehash the point. But as we come back to 1 John chapter 5, verse 18, let's carry the context that Jude had delivered there, that Jude gave us, that idea of keeping ourselves in the love of God, 
by building ourselves up in our most holy faith and praying in the Holy Ghost, as we learned about just a couple of weeks ago, and we bring it back into 1 John. The one who is born again is not sinning, but rather, we could comfortably say, because the child of God keeps himself in the love of God, he does not sin. And how does he keep himself? He grounds himself in the doctrines of the faith through scripture, through our coming together to provoke one another unto love and good works. And he spends time in focused and consistent habit of communion with God in asking and receiving. And if you and I are willing to commit ourselves unto those virtues, to live in this life of righteousness through keeping ourselves, keeping ourselves in the love of God, building ourselves up in our most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, then on the authority of God's word, what does John say here? And that wicked one toucheth him not. Now this term wicked one has come up three other times within 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, verse 13 spoke of it. 1 John 2 14 spoke of it, and 1 John 3, verse 12. All three of those places used this term, wicked one. And all of these spoke of the person and the work of the devil. And we would not believe that this, this usage of wicked one is anything other than what those uh, uses, uh, usages of the wicked one were. We believe here that the idea is that as I keep myself in the love of God, as I build myself up in my most holy faith, as I pray in the Holy Ghost, I have effectively, we might say in the Ephesians 6 terms, put on the armor of God effectively and properly in order that I might stand in the day of battle, that I might be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, the wicked one who seeks to tempt, who seeks to destroy. And in doing so, I am preserved. How is it? that we can secure consistent victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil. Well, John said in verse 4 that faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Keeping ourselves secure in our victories over, or, uh, secures our victory over the flesh as we keep ourselves, and in doing so, the wicked one cannot touch us. So first, the first thing that we know, 1 John 5, 18, we know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not. Verse 19. And we know that we are of God and the whole world lieth in wickedness. As we live in this place of victory, there is another confidence that imposes itself upon our sensibilities. We live in a place of consistent, not constant, but consistent victory over sin and the wicked one touches us not. But the world around us lieth in wickedness, the scriptures tell us. Wickedness doesn't just touch them. Wickedness engulfs them. In other words, there is a distinction. We not only know that the one who is born of God, the one who is living in a consistent victory, the one who is keeping himself in the love of God, the one who is building himself up in his most holy faith, the one who is praying in the Holy Ghost is one who is not sinning because he keeps himself in the love of God, because he is keeping himself and the wicked one cannot touch him. So this we know, but we also know this, that this makes us different, distinct from the world that is around us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul calls those who are not of God the lost. 
He says, if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. And in describing the manner of their lostness, he says this in verse 4 of 2 Corinthians 4. In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. The emphasis of the idea that the world lieth in wickedness is not that you're a good person and the people outside these doors are bad people. That's not the emphasis here. The comparison as made is not intended to draw you into some sort of self-righteous sense of pride or of accomplishment or of differentiation of that sort. Everything that you have, Christian, that is of any value in the eyes of God has been given to you by Jesus Christ. You know that, and I know that. So the idea here, the distinction that the whole world lieth in wickedness, that we're of God and the whole world lieth in wickedness, the distinction there is not one of self-righteousness. Indeed, it cannot be. The only thing that separates you from those who lie in that wickedness is the faith that you have exercised in Jesus' work, in Jesus' promise, by which you have overcome the world, not through your own strength, not through your own glory, not even through your own knowledge, but by Christ alone. Everyone else, however, no matter how good, no matter how moral, if they are not in Christ, if they are not of God, then they are lying in wickedness. Their minds are blinded by the God of this world, by the wicked one that cannot touch us when we're walking in faith, when we're building ourselves up in our most holy faith, when we're praying in the Holy Ghost, when we are keeping ourselves in the love of God, that wicked one cannot touch us. But much to the, to the contrary, much to the contrast, while the wicked one cannot touch us, while we are living in that state, the world, those that are outside of Christ, they, that, that's by definition their identity. They lie in that wickedness. It is the very context within which they live their lives, lest the light of the glorious gospel should shine unto them and they should become children of the living God. So then what should this well up in us? This second idea of knowledge, what does it do for us? What, does this, what conclusion does this bring us unto? Once again, it does not bring us unto a, a conclusion of self-righteousness for you did not earn the state in which you find yourself, not have you gotten, but what you've received. By the grace of God, you are what you are, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.10. So it cannot well up within you self-righteousness. It also does not well up within you judgment. For indeed, Matthew 7 tells us, judge not lest ye be judged. The call here is not that the whole world lies in wickedness and I am of God, therefore I have the right to stand over the world, to look down on the world, to judge the world, to stand above the world. It should not even motivate us intrinsically to be different per se. For indeed, there are plenty of moral and religious people that are just as different as you and I are, though completely lost in their own wickedness as well. They are not of God. They lie in the same wickedness. Their eyes are just as blinded by the God of this world, but they are very different from the world nonetheless. So the determination here, the thing that we see here is not 
to be different per se, and this is the, the par pardon the way I'll describe it, but this is the distinction I make regularly. There is a difference between being different and being distinct. We may not always look different, or we may look different, but a bunch of other people who lie in wickedness may look different too. But there will be a distinction to the child of God. There will be something, a distinction, that sets you apart. And of course, that distinction is Christ in you. Now, we already went to Jude. Verses 20 and 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. But I want to go back there again. And I want to show you the verses both before 20 and 21 and after what we just considered so that we can think through this idea of distinction because Jude talks about this as well. As Jude, excuse me, calls us to keep ourselves in the love of God, to build ourselves up in our most holy faith, to pray in the Holy Ghost, he does so in light of a broader exhortation unto Distinction. Notice what he says beginning in verse 17. He says, But beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how that they told you that there should be mockers in the last time who should walk after their own ungodly lusts. These be they who separate themselves, sensual, having not the spirit. But ye, beloved... This is, what we were, this is what we read before. Building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost... Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Notice verse 22. And of some have compassion, making a difference, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. Jude is warning in this passage about false teachers. That's what the entire epistle of Jude is about. It's very, very similar to the epistle, to the, the, the second chapter of 2 Peter, the epistle of 2 Peter. Very similar ideas, very similar warnings. Jude is warning against false teachers, against wolves in sheep's clothing, men who are fakers, men who sound the part, men who look the part, but who fleece the flock of God rather than building it up in love. And the way we know the difference is not what they wear or how they talk, but the way they separate themselves is that they are sensual. They are not driven by the spirit. They are driven by the flesh. They think on a carnal plane rather than a spiritual plane. This is the distinction between the Christian and the non-Christian, between one who is of God and one who is of the world. The difference is not what you look like. It's not what you sound like. It is whether or not you're spiritual or carnal. It is whether you're driven by the flesh or by the spirit. They can look the part. They can talk the part. But their motivation will not be spiritual. Their motivation will be carnal. Their perspective will not be spiritual. Their perspective will be carnal. Maybe you've met someone like that before where they have claimed to be a believer and as you've sat down to talk with them about spiritual things, they have all the right words, they have all the right vernacular, they have all the right way of, 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 of pre presenting themselves, but when you start to talk about spiritual things, it's like the only thing that comes out of them is carnal. They connect everything to the understandings that are rooted in this world rather than the, the understandings of the things that are rooted in the world that is to come. 
That is the fruit of one who is not of God. They, like the rest of the world, lie in wickedness. Their minds have been blinded by the God of this world, lest they should believe and receive the gospel of Christ. And it is in this context that Jude compels his readers to keep themselves in the love of God, as we've already studied. But notice unto what end. He says in verse 22, And of some have compassion, making a difference. That word difference there is the idea of separation in kind. It is not the, it's, it's not the shallow concept of let's make a difference in someone's life today. That's not it at all. It's really good for a fortune cookie. It's really nice to put up on a plaque somewhere, but that's not what the Bible is saying. What the Bible is saying here is have compassion on someone, show them the distinction. Show them the difference between the world and God, between the flesh and the spirit. Make a definitive distinction. Live that definitive distinction. And he says, others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. And notice here, the distinction still exists. Hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. The distinction, Christian, is not looks. It's not sounds. It isn't hobbies. It isn't habits. The distinction is between flesh and spirit. Are you walking in the spirit or are you walking in the flesh? Are you a part of the world or are you overcoming the world? Do you walk by sight? Do you walk by faith? Christian, if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are not like the world that is around you. You're not. You're different in kind. If any man be in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5 says, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. But that doesn't, that, 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 that doesn't intrinsically apply to looks or sounds or hobbies or amusements. It applies to life. It applies to spirit, distinction. The reason why the call to be distinct from the world isn't supposed to be that you don't look like them per se. That might happen in, in the increasingly Wicked culture we find ourselves in, it almost will inevitably happen that you will not look like them. But that's not the object of distinction. In the increasingly carnal culture we find ourselves in, you will almost certainly not sound like the world that is around you, but that is not the object of this distinction. The object of this distinction is that you don't live like them. They lie in wickedness. You live in the Holy Ghost. They live for this life. You live for the life that is to come. They do what they want for their own reasons. You do what God wants for his own glory. Whether therefore they eat or drink or whatsoever they do, they do it for whatever reason they want to. Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, ye do all to the glory of God. 
That's the distinction, Christian. That's the difference. If you look different, okay. If you don't, okay. If you sound different, okay. If you don't, okay. If you do different, okay. If you don't do different, okay. Those are not the operative distinctions. The operative distinction is who do you live for? What do you live for? Why do you live for it? What is your direction? Who are you saturated in? Yourself or Christ? That's the distinction. This is what is supposed to make us distinct from the world around us. That we know that we are of God. They are not of God. You are of God. They lie in wickedness. Your faith has overcome the world. You walk in the Spirit. So you sin not. Is that you this evening, Christian? Are you an overcomer? I don't care how different you look, how different you sound, how different you act. Are you living in a manner that overcomes the world? Are you walking in the Spirit? Are you in a place where the wicked one is not touching you? Are you living in spiritual victory? Not religious victory, not moral victory, spiritual victory. If you look and sound and act different, but your heart is filled with envy and murder and anger and lust, you are not living in the spirit no matter what you sound like, no matter what you look like. If you won't watch that movie, you won't go to that place, but your life is dominated by selfishness and resentment and fear, you are not living in the spirit no matter what you will or won't watch. But here's the thing. When you're living in distinction, in the distinction of the spiritual, when your inside is right, your outside will take care of itself. When your inside is right, when you are right with God in Christ, when you have accepted Christ as your Savior, and you are living in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ in your life on a day-by-day, moment-by-moment, walking in the Spirit, abiding in Christ's basis... Yep, it's still going to take discipline to do what's right because there is a whole world out there that wants you to do all sorts of things that are not okay and it's very alluring. Still going to take discipline. Still going to take a choice of the will. But if you have woken up like Joseph did on the day that Potiphar's wife came and wanted him to sin with her and he says, how can I do this great sin against my master and my God? He had already made the decision before the temptation came that he was going to do what was right before God. If you wake up every day and you say, I am on God's side, I am going in God's way, you know what you're not going to do? Things that you shouldn't do. That's going to take care of itself because you've already made the decision. You're already walking in the spirit and that wicked one can't touch you. Let us live in this confidence. You know that you are of God, Christian. When the whole world lies in wickedness, blinded by the God of this world, You are born of God, therefore you don't sin. You are of God, the whole world lies in wickedness. There's a distinction, live it. And we have that confidence. Okay, whosoever is born of God does not sin. We know that. Second, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies in wickedness. There's a distinction between us. It's supposed to be there. Third, 1 John 5, verse 20. 
And we know that the Son of God is come and hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true. And we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. This is the final set of we knows. It's a we know in order that we might know. We know finally that we can know God. This is an interesting one. We know that we can know God. We know that the Son of God has come in the flesh. This was distinguished in 1 John 4. One of the big debates of the false teachers within 1 John, that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. We know that he has come in the flesh. We know who he is. We know that he came. We know what he taught. And we know that we can know him. This is a big deal, isn't it? It is actually a really big deal that you can know that you can know God. We say it quite regularly at Legacy Baptist Church that we are confident that God is not sitting in the heavens laughing as we're groping in darkness trying to figure him out while he has seen fit not to reveal himself to us. We do not believe that that is the God we serve. We believe we serve a God who wants us to know him, who wants us to know his will, and who wants us to live in it and rest in it. He does not want us to be groping around in darkness. He does not want us confused. He wants us to know him. That's why he gave us such a big book about him. He has revealed himself to us. He desires to reveal himself to us. Jesus is not some sort of ethereal figure. He came. He lived among men. We have four separate eyewitness accounts of what he did, of what he said. He wants us to know him, and we can know that we may know him and that who he is is true and that we can be in him and that this is true as well. And he is the son of God whose name is Jesus Christ and he is the true God and it is eternal life and all of that is settled and I don't have to spend the rest of my life wondering about it. I don't have to get on my deathbed and wonder whether or not I'm in him. I don't have to do that. It's settled. I don't have to spend the rest of my life trying to earn my way to him and wondering if I'm good enough. I don't have to do that. It's been settled. I don't have to spend my whole life trying to figure out who the historical Jesus is. We've been given that Jesus. It's settled. It's in his word. It's been handed to us. It's been preserved for us by the grace of God. And we can know just as surely as we know anything that Jesus is who he says he is. He did what he said he did. And because of what he did, As he said on the cross, it is finished. That he has revealed himself to us. And then, on top of that, he has given to us of his Holy Spirit, right? By which we can know all things. 1 John 2, 27. Remember when we were back there. John wrote, But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. The anointing which teaches us of the Christ, who we believe is come, through this anointing, through the Spirit of God, we have understanding and also relationship. So that it is not just the witness of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. It is not just the witness of the water, the blood, and the Spirit. But it is the witness that we have in us 
as we already studied earlier in 1 John 5. The Spirit of God who testifies to us of the truths of these things. And if you're here this evening and that Spirit of God still has not testified in you, you have never come to the point in your own life where you've recognized that you are separated from God, that your, your separation uh, uh, through sin means that you cannot have a personal relationship with God, that you are a sinner, that there's nothing you can do to work your way, to earn your way into a right relationship with God. Your sin has separated you from God and you are unrighteous. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And if you've never come to the point where you've cried out to the Lord, acknowledged that Jesus is who he says he is, that he did what he said he did, that he died on the cross to save you from your sins, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day in victory over sin, would you make tonight the night where you enter into that relationship with him so that you can testify of what 1 John 5 verse 20 testifies, that you know him that is true and you are in him that is true. And this is Jesus Christ, the true God and eternal life. And the eternal life is in you because you are in him. And that's the confidence that we can have. No one needs to leave here tonight no one in this world needs to leave this world outside of that confidence. Many will. But it certainly isn't because God has not made the way. Certainly not because God has not revealed himself to us. It is certainly not because God has not charted the path because the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world has charted this path for us. And it is for us to receive it by grace, through faith, as a gift. I can't earn it. I can't deserve it. I can't do anything for it. But that's okay because Jesus already did that for me. That's confidence, Christian. We know this. We, ha we can have this eternal life. And this all, all goes back to that great statement that Jesus made in John 17, 3, as he prayed for us. He said, and this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent, Life eternal is that we know the Father and the Son who, he's, who He has sent. Life eternal is a life lived in communion with God through that Son. Life eternal is spiritual life. And it is this eternal life by which we overcome the world, Christian. It is this eternal life by which we make a distinction between ourselves and those who lie in wickedness. It is this eternal life by which we have confidence both in our salvation and in our prayers. And it is by this eternal life that we come to that most elusive of concepts that we have been talking about all the way since the beginning, that concept called fullness of joy. And that brings me all the way back to message number five. We're on 31 now. Way back in message number five, I showed you a little chart. When we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ is cleansing us from all sin. Walking in the light, fullness of joy comes from God as we walk in fellowship with God and man. So then if I don't have joy, I know that something is wrong in my fellowship with God and man. Fellowship with God and man comes from walking in the light. So that if I'm not walking in the light, then I'm not in fellowship and I certainly won't have fullness 
of joy. I won't have confidence because I'm not in fellowship. And that because I'm not walking in the light. Because that's where Jesus is. He is in the light. So then, if I want to have fullness of joy, I stay in the light. I'm not sinning. I'm keeping myself in the love of God. I'm building myself up in my most holy faith. I'm praying in the Holy Ghost. 1 John 1, 9, I'm confessing my sin and He is faithful and just to forgive me of my sin so that I may enter back into the light. And then I have fellowship with God and with man. And then I have fullness of joy. And that brings us to our final verse. That's where all of this takes us. 1 John 5, verse 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. I must walk in the light to have fellowship. I must have fellowship to have confidence that leads me to this place where I know, where I know what we know here. I know that I'm born of God because I'm not sinning. I know that I am of God and that the whole world lies in wickedness. And I know that the Son of God has come and has given me an understanding that I may know that which is true. And Christian, there is something that will keep all of this knowledge from you. An idol is anything and everything that I might put above God in priority or favor in my life. God has a certain priority in my life. And if something else takes priority above him, that is an idol to me. Idols can take all sorts of shapes and forms. Idols can be little rocks, gold statues, right? That's what we think of when we think of idols. Something I've carved out of wood that I bow down and I worship. Not a whole lot of that happening today, at least in our circles. Plenty of it happening in the world. And there's all sorts of other idols too, aren't there? The love of money is the root of all evil. Not money itself, but the love of money. Idol to a lot of people. We look at those things and we can see covetousness and greed, lust, uh, the, the idol of a certain material lifestyle, the idol of power in our society, the idol of, un, uh, of, 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 uh, um, of, of celebrity, of honor, of fame. These are idols in society. As a matter of fact, even that idea of celebrity, right? Our society has for generations idolized athletes, and actors, those who in other times and in other places were actually the dregs of society because people knew all they were good for was entertainment and amusement. We idolize those people in our society. We idolize politicians now in our society so that people have little votive candles to their favorite politician in their home and effectively worship them. Anything you place above God in priority or favor is an idol to you. So we see all these things that we would look at and we say, these are idols and these are bad. But you know, other things can become idols as well. Things that would otherwise be good can become idols. Any sort of religious dogma can become an idol. My family can become an idol. My wife 
can become an idol. I can place other things, things that are good, things that are, are right in their proper place. Many things are right in their proper place, but they can take a higher priority than God in my life, and it strips me of relationship, of fellowship. Anything you follow, Christian, to the detriment of your most holy faith can be an idol to you. Anything that keeps you from spending time in prayer can be an idol for, to you. These things are going to take you away from building yourself up in your most holy faith. These things are going to take you away from praying in the Holy Ghost. These things are going to take you away from Christ and place you back into the world that you're not supposed to love. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. These are idols. They are stripping from you, Christian, your distinction. They are stripping from you your fellowship. And so they're stripping from you your joy. And regardless of what it is, whether it be some manner of wickedness, lust or envy or unforgiveness or bitterness rooted in your heart that you're refusing to yield and thus placing higher than God when God's Holy Spirit has called you to release it, to forsake it, to repent of it. Or whether it be, again, something that's good but out of balance, work. It's important to work. It can become an idol. Family. Family is important can become an idol. If it is stripping from you your distinction, Christian, if it is stripping from you your fellowship with God, if it is stripping from you your joy, keep yourself from that idol. You don't necessarily have to keep yourself from the thing. Don't say, sorry, family, I'm out of here. No, put your family in its proper place. Put your job in its proper place. Put your emotions in their proper place. Put money in its proper place. Put amusements in their proper place. Put God at the top of that, of that hierarchy. Keep yourself from idols. That's what's going to strip from you all of these things that we know. So as we step out of 1 John today, Christian, may God help us to inspect our lives. How are you doing? Are you keeping yourself in the love of God? Building yourself up in our most holy faith? Praying in the Holy Ghost? Keeping yourself from idols? Living in the knowledge that God has given you? Walking in the Spirit? And so allowing the Spirit to confirm these things in your heart, in your life, by abiding in Christ. To ensure that we are indeed keeping ourselves from these idols. And in by keeping ourselves from idols, keeping ourselves in the love of God, unto fullness of joy. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.